0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I have fresh batteries, and we have so much to talk about. Uh, We're going to have a little different format today. We are going to start with a hero. I'm going to get some messy political things out of the way first, very briefly, so don't panic for those of you who are dug in on one side or or the other. A couple of things I find intriguing about what's happening as of late. And then at the end of this, I'm going to do something. I'm going to start something new, which is I'm going to break down uh, one particular... Uh, experience I've had as a photographer that might be funny, it might be poignant, it might be pointless. But anyway, I'm going to do that. We're starting out today with our hero, which is someone I've emailed with, but I've never met, even though he also lives in Santa Fe. His name is Michael Clark, and he is a photographer here. And the reason I'm bringing him up and the reason I'm putting him on a hero category, or on the hero chart, if you will, is that he does a newsletter? He does an email newsletter that is the most badass email newsletter I have ever seen. I frankly don't know how he produces it every quarter, but somehow he does. And if you haven't seen this, you haven't subscribed to it. You're out of your bloomin' mind because it is uh, very well worth seeing. I actually get it from a friend of mine who is subscribed to it, who always emails it to me. So I'm I've bastardized the process. I should sign up for it myself, but I'm. I'm lazy and I'm selfish, and uh, someone else is doing it for me. It's like someone bringing me breakfast in bed every time this comes out. Michael Clark, look him up, download the, uh, subscribe to the newsletter, and prepare to have your mind blown. Okay, moving on. I want to get the uh, politics thing out of the way. We're obviously had a little spat with Iran as of late, but let's let's remind the audience and the listener base that we've been fighting with Iran for a long, long time. And by the way, it's not Iran. When I hear our our politicians on a national level, calling it Iraq or Iran, it just makes me cringe. I'm almost positive it's Iran. I think that's a better pronunciation, and maybe pronouncing the other person's country is a nice diplomatic way of solving the solutions that always seem to have us fighting with one another. Um, There are two things that happened that I found profoundly interesting. And at the heart of all of this – and this is not just an American thing. I'm going to touch on Australia here in a minute as well. But I think I've had a lot of discussions about this in the past few days with a variety of different friends. And the, the reality is that we're – America in particular is a massively corrupt place, right? If you look at the banking system, the education, energy, environment, politics, law enforcement, the level of corruption is astounding, And for whatever reason, as an American, and for those of you listening in other countries, when you grow up here, you're taught that we're the good guys, and everyone else is the bad guys, and that we're the best country in the world. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of you from other countries, you probably have similar sentiments, or your education system plants these seeds in your head that, you know, oh, you're an American, and we're always the good guys, we're always the person, the cowboy wearing the white hat, and everyone else is really bad. And then once you start educating yourself beyond the mainstream education system or public education system, you realize, oh my God, there's a whole different history out there. What we learn in school is an American version of history. And then based on the state that you grew up in, uh, and I spent a lot of my time in Texas growing up as a kid and being educated in Texas public school systems, you realize that there's even a Texas twist on this. And Texas is a very conservative energy state. And so... The history that you learn is tainted even more. And then when you get out and you start to realize what we've done as a country over the years, it explains a lot of the trouble that we're having today. But the pervasiveness of corruption in American culture is astounding. It's far beyond anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And the the difference now between when I was a kid and today is that no one even has to hide it today. You basically just lie and then deny. You lie and deny. Even when you're caught dead to riots, you just lie and deny. So it's kind of crazy. But two people came out who were supporters. are of Donald Trump and one of Republican I don't remember who it was in particular but they said something along the lines of Donald Trump has a quote child's understanding of foreign policy and this is a supporter of his who said Trump has a child's understanding and the second thing was Rick Santorum on CNN another shameless, hypocritical supporter of our, our administration came out and said, quote, we have to, we have to ignore 80 to 90 percent of what the president says. Now, just think about that for a second. It's just astounding that this is a supporter claiming that, well, you know, 80 to 90 percent of what comes out of his mouth, we have to ignore, so that kind of tells you where we're at. And again, this goes back to what I've been saying long before Trump was even elected. When he was on the, got the nomination, I said, if, you know, if, we, if he's elected, we completely deserve what happens to us. We absolutely have nobody else to blame but ourselves for the current situation that we're in. And for those—I'm I'm curious about this. For those of you who identify as a Republican or with the Republican Party, I'm curious about something. So Trump was never a Republican, right? He was never really a member of any political party. He didn't have to be. When you have that kind of money and you're living a life like that, that basically has no rules. You're inventing things as you go along. And if anybody argues with you or gets in the way, you just immediately deluge them with, uh, with lawsuits. He was never a Republican. Uh, he took over the Republican Party he completely and utterly took it over in less than 60 days so if you identify with the with the Republicans how on earth does that make you feel about your political party that a guy an insurgent came in looked around and said i'm going to own these guys and owned them in less than 60 days and now it's at a point where it doesn't matter what he does and says. They are 100% committed. You know, you've got their their media machine, the radio machine, the right-wing radio and television machine behind him. They're calling for full-on war with Iran. It doesn't matter. It's just astounding to me that he could have taken over the party that quickly. Okay, moving on. Uh, and remember, I've got a bunch of photo-related stuff coming up here, but some of this uh, stuff that's happening— uh, I was just watching something this morning about the fires in Australia, and as you know I'm working on the zine collaboration AG23, and the designer that is designing it is based in Sydney, so I'm constantly checking in with her to make sure that things are okay with her and her house, etc. So far she's great, but the fires down there are no joke, and it reminded me of something that might give you a little glimpse into um, how bad these things are. So when I first started in photography, I had an internship at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix. This was in 1993 and i was kind of clueless i had a degree in photojournalism but i really didn't have any idea how to be a photographer and a lot of the photographers on staff who were more seasoned and more and just better photographers you know were were very helpful to me and very kind to me in helping me get started and one of the things about being a photographer in phoenix is that during the summer there are a massive number of fires you know it's incredibly dry it's inc- incredibly hot and everything there is ready to go up in flames and so the paper had one photographer in particular who was quote unquote the fire guy and he was gung-ho he had the training he had the suits and the protective equipment his truck was covered with radio antennas you know he would often arrive at these fires before the actual firefighters etc but inevitably if you're a photographer and you're in the field you were going to photograph a fire at some point because they were just breaking out all over the place. And F- and Phoenix is flat, so when a fire broke out, you could see it from miles away and then just, you know, break every law known to man to get over there to make pictures of it. So one day I'm driving south in the middle of the city. I don't remember what street it was. It could have been Central Avenue, which kind of splits the city north to south um, right down the middle. And it's two lanes in both directions with a little tiny median in the middle. And so I'm driving down there, and a fire breaks out in just a vacant lot that has probably grass that's two and a half feet tall. And so I park on the east side of the road. So again, four lanes, the fire is on the west side, and I park on the east side in a parking lot that not only has four lanes of traffic separating it from the fire, but it also has the giant parking lot that I'm in. So there's the four lanes of road, there's a chain link fence, there's the parking lot, and then there's my truck. So I get out, and there's a line of firefighters, like a skirmish line. They're like 20 feet apart and in formation, walking slowly towards the fire through this dry field. So being this brilliant individual that I am, I'm like, oh, I'll just get out, and I'll walk up behind them because, you know, then I'll have them in the foreground and the fire in the background, and there's nothing really in this lot. It's just a vacant lot, but surrounded by structures. So as I'm walking towards them, I get right up behind the firefighters. I kind of make enough noise to where they know I'm there. I identify myself as being with the paper, which at that time actually meant something. And they were like, okay, cool. He's vetted. You know, he can be here, blah, blah, blah. And as we get relatively close to the fire, the wind changes. And the wind goes from easterly to blowing from the west back east, which means now the wind is blowing directly in our face. And within two seconds... The firefighter in front of me turns around and I see the look on his face and his eyes through his protective shield, and they're bugging out of his head. And he looks at me and he says, Run. And all of us turned and spun and ran. And I'm talking, we're Carl Lewis here. I was never a sprinter, I was always a distance guy, but I was like knees to my chin full camera equipment flopping on my shoulders, my fanny pack bouncing up and down. And we ran for our lives because when that wind flipped and those flames came at us, it came across that field as fast as we could run. And these guys are in full equipment, right? So they're, they're hauling ass behind me. And I'm like, totally Carl Lewis. I'm, I'm in the front. I arch out, you know, I bow my chest out and cross the ribbon. So I get to the road thinking I'm okay and again the grass in this field was only like two and a half feet tall this was not like a forest burning but as i get to the center of the road and now traffic is stopped in both directions people can't get through this area the wall of flames i'm not kidding you is probably 40 feet high and the heat coming off the flame is so intense it starts to melt the chain link fence on the other side of the four lanes which in my truck is even further thankfully because it would have burned the paint off the off my truck And so now I realize I'm not safe. I got to get out of here. So now I'm thinking my truck's going to burn up and catch on fire. So I got to get back to my truck. And as I'm running across the four lanes and feeling this intense heat on my back, I look up and about a 20-foot section of flame has snapped off the top of the wall of flame and shoots like an arrow over the four lanes of traffic, over the parking lot, over my truck, into the field on the other side of the road and catches it on fire. I've never in my life seen that. I didn't know fire could do that. It was, it was prehistoric. It was medieval. It was astounding. And I realized I'm in deep shit. And so I literally got to my truck and hauled out of there, and it completely torched that other field, and it ended up completely and utterly melting the entire chain link fence that was separating my truck from the four lanes of traffic. So the, what's happening in Australia now with these bushfires is so far beyond what I just explained to you. So if you haven't been around a fire like this, it's kind of hard to understand the behavioral aspects of fire, the intensity, the heat, the smoke, and everything. I didn't even mention the smoke. It's just, it's so acrid and beyond anything. You immediately feel like I'm give, I'm getting cancer just by breathing this stuff, especially when a lot in a city is burned, because God knows what's been dumped on it over the years. So watching... What's happening in Australia? You you have to tip your hat to the firefighters and just the civilians in general. Australians are badass. I absolutely love that country. I love Australians. I love their their spirit towards the world itself. Not all of them. I'm sure there's a bunch of a holes down there as well. But I've been fortunate enough not to not to meet many of them. But um, I also saw something. Just one last little bit of politics. Um, you know, Australia obviously is dealing with a with a corruption level as well. Because when you look at their PM Morrison out trying to get a photo op with people who have lost everything. You know, and here's a guy that was on vacation, lied about it, came back and is now trying to like spin this because he's he's in bed with oil and gas and the coal industry and they've been their governments have been in bed with these guys for a long time and they're now they're really starting to pay the pay the piper for that. But he literally is going out and trying to get a photo op to make it look like people like him and he's having to reach down and grab people's hands to put them in his hand to make it look like they're shaking his hand because he shows up and people are like, F you, you know, get out of here. And you got to watch this footage because people are calling him all kinds of names and he just flees. He flees like a guy running from fire. And you realize, God, you know, these people, the, the, the oil and gas, the coal industry down there, whatever, the mining industry also has a lot of control in Australia. But man, it is like it is ugly i it's it's trump like but in a in a different kind of way because there's something so wonderful about australians their society their culture etc and and there's even something wonderful in how i don't even know how to describe it And how here's the prime minister. It'd be like Trump showing up, and basically Morrison doesn't even look like he has security around him. I'm sure he does, but it's like so low-key compared to what it would be like here. And he's wearing like a normal set of clothes. Trump would never do that. You know, it's a totally different scenario. But to see how people react to the PM is even so unique to me in my mind because it's so different from what we would have here. But anyway, check it out. It's so embarrassing for this guy, and at some point we're going to get wise. Okay, moving on. Our hero is Michael Clark. I touched a little bit on the insanity of Trump and the Iran situation, and also the bushfires, and how crazy it is if you've never been around a forest fire or bushfire. It is an astounding experience. Not one that I, I hope many of you ever have to endure, but as a photographer, it was fascinating. Um, and then uh, I want to move on a little bit. I mentioned this before, but I have a new sound recorder and a new mic system. The sound recorder is here, and the mics, I had to send back the original mics, which were made by Roland which were fine, but they were a two-channel mic, and I was looking for something that was a one-channel. And I reached out to Craig Maud in Japan. He's a guy that I've mentioned on here many times before. I think he's brilliant. I think what he does online is fascinating. I love his work. I have a total, total man crush on him. And he, I asked him about what mics he was using. He mentioned what they are. They're Soundman um, OKR Studio 2 mics that are coming from, I want to say Germany, although I think I ordered them from a company in the UK. Anyway... Those are coming, and I am going to be adding in uh, a lot more ambient sound to what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm doing new projects, which have not just still elements anymore, but also elements of motion. And ambient sound to me is fascinating. I, I used to have, back in the day, my friend Michael, who's a painter uh, in San Francisco, but he used to be in L.A., and he's a, a friend of mine that I just—he's super talented in so many different ways. And I, I'm, he's one of those guys that when I'm around, I'm, I'm always nervous because he's so good— at so many different things, but he and I, he primarily, but I also had one too at the time. Back in the day, this was in the 90s, early 2000s in Los Angeles, we both had uh, Sony mini-disc recorders, and if you'd ever remember the mini-disc, the mini-disc was phenomenal. This was like this little device that had a little tiny laser disc inside of it, and you could do audio recordings, and, and, and the mini-disc community was insane, it was so diehard and so interesting and different, and Michael and I used to record all kinds of stuff, ambient sound, and then at the time, the internet was still relatively, felt like it was relatively new, and you could record music um, for offline or online through your mini-disc recorder. Anyway, my new recorder is a Sony as well. It's a PCM-A10, and it is tiny. It's It fits in the palm of my hand. It's probably... A sixth or a seventh the size of my current audio recorder, which is a Zoom H6, uh, which is a great recorder by the way, which I'm using it right now. And the Sony's for field recordings, and the mics are on the way. So I am going to be recording my butt off over the next few months, and uh, I cannot wait to start adding this into the projects that I'm doing. I do have a new project, by the way, which I'm not going to share a whole lot on today because I'm a long way away from making any pictures on it, but. It could be a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I'm going to move on. Michael Clark, hero, bushfires, uh, Iran, U.S., spat. Uh, um, The next point was the new binaural Sony mics. Uh, And the next thing I want to touch on very quickly is a two-part thing. And I've I've been speaking a lot about this lately, and I did a video, uh, a YouTube session, a YouTube film, a couple, I guess about a week ago that I posted where I'm answering people's questions. And they were, I thought, were really good questions. People, Mark from Advancing Your Photography on YouTube sent out a questionnaire saying, hey, you know, if you have anything to ask Dan, send it in. And I thought the questions were really good. And a lot of the questions dealt with whether or not, you know, there were consumers or prosumer photographers out there who were thinking about becoming a professional. And this is a tricky scenario for me because I don't want to discourage people, right? If you want to be a professional photographer, it's not my it's not up to me to decide whether or not you do that. But what's interesting is I probably have a very different perspective on it than you do, and I've harped on this many times before that there is a huge difference between the YouTube photography world or the online photo world and the actual professional photo world. These are two unrelated fields. So a lot of people are looking around at what's happening online and on YouTube, and they think that those people are part of the professional industry. In most cases, they are not. They are, they don't even overlap. So when people are asking me, hey, how do I make the jump into professional photography? My first question is, why on earth would you want to do that? Because most of the time when people tell me they want to make a jump, it's because they don't have any understanding of what the actual professional industry is actually like. If most of my friends who are photographers were out there telling me that things were great and that they were having fun and that they were financially successful and that their lives weren't filled with stress or dealing with idiotic clients or people who had no appreciation for photography or clients who are obsessed with going viral, which is, ugh, that started 20 years ago, then I wouldn't be saying this. But the truth is, that's that's what's happening to most of the people that I know who are working full-time as photographers. They're not happy. Now, there is a certain segment who are older than I am, who are people who've been wildly successful for decades, who are basically aged out of the nonsense that's happening in the industry today, and they're shooting high-end advertising, high-end commercial, etc., some of those people are still doing really well. They're doing fine. And then there's a handful of young photographers who I think have their acts together, who are very smart, very talented, very organized, who also seem to be doing well. But they are very, very small in number. So if you're making a jump to photography, you have to realize that what you think of photography today is going to change dramatically. When you start putting your fate, your your photographic fate, in the hands of clients, it changes everything. And oftentimes what it does is suck the fun out of it because you are a product and you are delivering a product for someone else and you're under the guise of their fickle understanding of what photography is. It can work, but it's very rare. My advice is to figure out a way to make the images that you want to make in your style on your timeline because otherwise, It's just not going to end well. So why not do something else for a living, even if it's part-time, and if you're making a little bit of money from photography, but you're making it from making your own pictures, it's a much, much, much different experience than it is to work full-time for someone else and then pretend that everything is good because that's a lot of what's happening, especially on social online, on YouTube, is everyone's rainbows and unicorns. And then you meet them in person and they are miserable. So that's my only thing I want to say is I, I get asked this all the time and I'm trying to be honest. And here, here's a little wrinkle to this, which is the second part of this answer question and answer. Recently, the magazine Vogue which historically has been an incredibly important magazine for photographers, decided to do an issue with no photographs because what they did is they realized, okay, we're spending X amount of time and we're burning X amount of resources to get our magazines photographed. So all these different shoots with production people and catering agents, art buyers, photographers, assistants, travel, airlines, food, hotels, whatever – They did an entire issue with illustration instead of photographs. If that doesn't scare the crap out of photographers, because you know what? People are still going to buy Vogue, and they're going to look at it, and they're going to go, okay, this is great. It's not to say that Vogue is going to go away from making photographs and all their issues, but that to me was a shot across the bow that should have put the fear of God in every single one of the photographers in that industry, because if Vogue does it, others are going to follow, and that does not bode well for photography, I think at the heart of many of the problems in photography are the photographers themselves. They've agreed to horrible contracts. They've given work away. They've fallen into the social media trap, the deluge of imagery trap. And I just look around and think at some point, if they don't right the ship and start to take back their rights, it's all over for everybody. So anyway, that's just my thought. And I'm sure that that's not a positive thing. One guy wrote in and said, gee, that was depressing. Well, if you spend any time around the actual photography industry, you will realize how depressing it is in some ways. And again, I, I commend those of, of the photographers out there who are fighting that creative fight, but it is not easy. And I can't imagine, I don't see it getting any easier in the, in the short term. So fingers crossed for the long term. Uh, speaking of YouTube, my next point is just a question I have a list of things that I'm going to cover on YouTube in the next few months. Um, it's a it's a loose list, nothing set in stone. But I'm curious. Uh If I was going to make a YouTube film that you think would be interesting, what would it be? I'm just curious. I'm actually going to do one about how I start projects because that seems to be a mystery to people. Um, And I just uh, made the first trip out on a new project that I would really like to start. I won't be able to make pictures at the very earliest. It'll be March before I can shoot anything. I've got a lot of blurb commitments until then. I'm on the road a lot. And frankly, I will not be able to get access. And this could be a story... Um, that I get into and then realize I'm never going to get access and I'll, and I'll stop it. Um, even in the best case scenario, it's a multi-year project before I would have anything that's remotely worth doing. Um, but I can explain to you how it came about and, and, uh, and I can also explain some of the projects I've done in the past and sort of my philosophy about that. But what else do you want to see on YouTube? Okay, moving on, um. I find uh, this is something that is it makes me cringe, and I've had some personal experience with it as of late. And I'm I'm not a fan of travel magazines at all. I do not like them. I don't even like the magazines that like cover the Western United States. You know who they are. Um, I I don't like these magazines. I think they're too conforming. They're BS. They are formulaic. They're they everything is expected. Everything is cliche. Um, and this goes to some of the outdoor magazines as well. I think all they do is is create features to sell gear that nobody needs, and it's embarrassing, and 99% of what they put out is about equipment and gear, and it's like camera magazines that do the same thing, and they pander to the masses of consumers who will buy this stuff and then never use it. But one thing I've been seeing repeatedly that absolutely drives me crazy, and it's short-sighted and idiotic, and I cannot believe travel magazines are still doing this, which is labeling, giving it, pr- providing a story Let's say about a road trip. Everybody loves the, the over, overdone, overblown, over-cliched road trip with the woman in the straw hat and the shawl, right? We've seen this on Instagram 150 million times. But what the travel magazines are doing, which is killing them, it's killing them, and they're too dumb to figure this out, and they're too lazy, and they're too conforming, which is they're labeling things, quote, insta-worthy. So not only are we going to deliver you the road trip pictures— and we're going to deliver you the map and we're going to tell you where to stay and where to eat and all the trendy hipster places but then we're going to tell you where to stop the car and get out and make your instagram photos and this is the most awful thing i can possibly imagine it is also the most least the least creative way of approaching any of this stuff and I can't remember the last time I saw a travel piece that had any kind of original photography. It's all the same cliche. The cityscape, the portrait, the food detail, the sign detail... Everything's a stop and a half hot. You know, you know these, you've seen these formulaic things oh, for decades, right? It's just awful. The the days of the original travel magazine are are at least a decade behind us. But they have got to stop putting insta-worthy because the problem is, there are a lot of tiny brained individuals out there who have devoted their life to this app who will go out of their way to get to that little insta spot. And they will do anything in their power to get there, regardless of how detrimental to that spot it actually will be. We've all seen the stories of late as of how bad the impact of Instagram has been on the natural world. And it is only going to get worse. And these morons at the travel magazines and some of the outdoor magazines don't seem to be smart enough to put it together. They're trading the long-term health of these locations for the short-term gain of a couple of eyeballs on their story and I'm sick of it. It just drives me insane. So my little personal attachment to this was, I, I live in Santa Fe, and this was the first year that over Thanksgiving, I decided I wanted to go up into the mountains, uh, just straight up Hyde Park Road into the, into the Santa Fe National Forest. I, I go there all the time. I've been there a zillion times. And I was not five minutes out of town before the Instagrammers had the road blocked. And you know the people, they have their little dogs and they have their straw hats and their outfits and their lackey little photographers with them who were banging and these people were standing in the middle of the road, parking in the middle of the road, it was so bad I had to turn around. That's the first time in my life that that's happened. And it pisses me off because these idiots don't live here, they don't give a crap about the Santa Fe National Forest, all they care about is their eyeballs on Instagram and when are more people going to speak out about this? Uh, It just drives me insane. So if I see InstaWorthy again, I am writing a scathing letter to the editor-in-chief because these clowns need to be held accountable for the insanity that they are unleashing on the natural world. Okay, next point is just a quick little synopsis. I've mentioned this many times before, which is, what would happen if Americans said, look, it's clear our government is off the rails, so I'm not going to pay taxes and I'm not going to drive? Do you realize, this is my opinion, do you realize how quickly things would fall apart if we as a collective said, look, our president refuses to release his taxes. We know he's hiding something. He has been forever. He's been a white-collar criminal his entire adult life, long, long, long time before he became president. He has a 40-year public track record. We know exactly what he's done um, the New York State is going after him, and that's going to be a problem because they're going to keep hunting and sniffing until they figure out what's happening. And I guarantee that they're going to unravel a bunch of stuff. Now, Trump's old. Um, you know, he's a super wealthy guy. He's never going to go to jail these people have a way of getting out of this stuff, but we know there's all kinds of shenanigans going on. And so what if we as a collective, as a people said, you know what, we're not going to release our taxes, and we're not going to pay taxes, because clearly the corruption has taken over our country. And oh, by the way, we're going to have a week of no driving. Do you realize how fast our system would crumble if those two things happened? Because, you know, we're the ones being taken advantage of. And if we just said, nope, not going to play. It would be insane. Now, this is never going to happen. People are never going to do that. And, and a significant portion of the country supports the regime. So, you know, those people are going to go along with whatever he asks for and whatever he says. But it just makes me wonder, like, how fragile is our system? Because this strike that just happened in Iran, one of the big stories that comes out always anytime there's instability in the Middle East is, up. Oh, oil prices are up. Now, should they go up? Maybe, maybe not. What kind of reserves do we have? But they go up because they know they can put them up and still get away with it because we're, we're a driving culture kind of thing. So we we, we can't, you know, what what's going to happen? We're going to develop public transportation overnight? No. And they know that. But anyway, what are your thoughts? Do you think, what would happen if you said, I'm not going to pay my taxes and I'm not going to drive for a week? I think it would be interesting. I mean, they would definitely come after you for not paying your taxes. They won't go after him, but they they will come after us for sure. Okay. Okay. Now, what else do we have to talk about? Um, let's see here. What do I want to do? Talk. I was talk, I'm going to talk about long play productivity. Uh, I think I will. I think I'll touch on this. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about is I'm going to tell you the story of, a, of a, an image. I'm going to break down what actually happened at this one event that totally changed my life. And I'm going to try to do this every podcast is to give a story behind an image or an event that was funny, scary, et cetera. But I think... Um, One of the things I've learned in the last year in particular, I've known this for a long time, and I've kind of bounced in and out of it over the years, which is about my production. My production level or my production output. And my production output now is very different than it was a decade ago when I was a photographer. I produce what I would consider a a lot of things. I, I write, I do the podcast, I do my blog, I do all my blurb work, I'm doing the AG23 zine, which is like having a second job. You know, I'm constantly producing. And I have friends that are like, man, you know, you do more on Monday than I do all week kind of thing. And so I do it because I like doing it. It's something, you know, the my website, I don't make any money on the website. I just like doing it. And that puzzles people because they're like, wow, why would you do it if you're not making money? It's the same thing about doing photo projects where all the photo projects I do now I lose money on because I'm paying for them, but I still want to do them. I just love doing photo projects. But there's a difference between always on production and long form production and i think what i've seen in the last decade for sure is this transfer into always on production and people are just constantly bragging about how little sleep they get how much they're, how crazy their life is how crazy their schedule is or oh i'm in, they, they drop these things on social media oh, I'm in my fifth airport for the week, you know, blah, blah, blah. And what they're doing is they're bragging, but they're bragging in this weird way of saying my life's a total mess and uh, airports suck, but they're spinning it into look how busy I am, look how amazing I am. And the truth is that most of the work that I find interesting is long-form, long-production time. Work and that's that's in the minority now, uh, dramatically in the minority because everybody's like now 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 share, shoot share shoot share. And I think ultimately at some point I might be dead by then, but at some point we're going to transfer back. And, it, and the case in point for me is I I, I read every day. This morning, I didn't because I spent an hour on the phone with my mom. My mom's getting older. She's in transition, and it's going to be a challenging—the near future will be very challenging. And so I'm trying to spend as much time as possible with her on the phone. And I FaceTime, and it's hysterical because she still doesn't get the understand FaceTime means I can see her. So most of the time, I'm seeing a close-up of her jaw or the side of her head. It's classic. And then I screen grab those and text them to my brother and sister, and we laugh about it. But anyway, I didn't get a chance to read today, and it bothers me because I'm reading a book about the Ebola outbreak in 2013 and 14 in West Africa, and it's fascinating, and the book is like a page-turner. You can't put it down. But the books are long-form, and I kind of look like I'm excited about, after Trump leaves office, the books that will emerge over the next five to ten years because by then, Freedom of Information Act— they will have deciphered what is actually going on behind the scenes, because the corruption level we know at the moment is the tip of the iceberg. Underneath of what's happening with he and his cronies and the cabinet members is so astoundingly corrupt that we will not even be able to get our heads around it for at least a decade. But when those books come out, again, he'll be 85 years old. It'll be over or whatever. But I'm fascinated. I'm interested in the long play. It's like I don't look at the Iranian— uh, the assassination and then the subsequent uh, missile attack afterwards. I don't look at that now. I go back to 1979, to the revolution in Iran, and even prior to that, and think, okay, what are what are the the tentacles that connect us? And then I want to know the history and the long story. That's what I'm interested in. And so I think for those of you out there, and and. <laughs> If, you, if you've been following this site or this podcast for a while, you know I've done recently, I've done a couple of different interviews about getting off of social and finding other means of putting your work into the world. And I'm now getting a deluge of messages and emails from people all over the world saying, oh, my God, you made me realize this, and I'm, and I'm much happier, and blah, blah, blah. And I think once you detach yourself and you move to a long-form thing, and the easiest way to do this, if you're still in these networks and you still feel like everything you have to do is share just pick a story and do one thing that's long form. Create the work and do not share it with anyone. Don't share anything along the process at all. And just let it marinate and spend a year on a project doing that and see what happens. Because I have a sinking suspicion, when you experience how nice it is to not have the shadow of the, of, of the outside world looming over your every move, it's A wonderful experience as a creative person. It's so much more productive. And I know that seems counterintuitive because you may not be making as much work and not sharing it and not getting constant feedback and blah, blah, blah. But it is so much more productive in the long run. And it's also much healthier for your brain to have something that is not firing those synapses in your brain and creating those grooves on a daily basis. So that's just my advice. Okay. The last thing I want to do is I want to talk about it's something that happened to me. This is going to be a reoccurring uh, theme on the on the podcast, and I don't know what to call it uh, because it may not be about an image. It might be about an experience. And this happened in and around about nineteen whew, ninety ninety one. I was uh, I was in school. I was a probably a second year photojournalism student at the University of Texas. I really I was clueless. I had no idea what I was doing, like most of us. Uh, but I had, I had ideas and I had goals. And before I went to university of Texas, I had already been working for newspapers. So I think I was in some ways a little more advanced than some of the other students. I'm not saying better. I had just been, I'd been on assignment. Um, I'd been on deadline. I'd shot a range of things. I had, I knew my equipment a little more. I had a little more equipment than most people because again, I'd already been out on assignment and some of the equipment was just loaned to me. It wasn't mine. And so what happened is when you when you're working in school and you got through the first couple of classes, which were, you know, classes that had photo classes that had like 300 people in them. So it was very odd. Um, And then the second year you started and your classes dropped down to like 10 or 15 people. And those were the same core people that you ended up graduating with, uh, you know, years down the road. And so what you had to do was you'd have these classes like, you know, the photo essay or I forget. It was like the project class. And so you had to do proposals. You had to do a written proposal and you had to send it to the head of the department. And then you get graded on your proposal and then you would go do the project and you would get graded and then they would average those projects out. And by the way, you had to print everything in the dark room and mount it and then you had to stand in front of the class and like deliver what you did and thoughts and you had to have your feedback. And some people would just destroy you for sport and then other people were supportive and blah, blah, blah. It was painful. But that's one of the great things about studying photography. It has nothing to do with technique and equipment and all that stuff. It has everything to do with the actual essays and about how to write about your work and how to talk about it, how to receive feedback, etc. So I was not a huge friend of the head of the department and he was no friend of mine. And I don't know exactly why, but it was from day one I knew that there was was not going to be a simpatico relationship between the two of us. And I think it was because I had come in with some base of knowledge and I came in with an idea of what I needed to learn to actually become a photographer. I needed to learn how to shoot color and I needed to learn how to shoot transparency. And the program at Texas was primarily a black and white program. And I thought, I love black and white, but no one's going to hire me to do this. Everybody's shooting color. All the magazines want color. I have to shoot transparency. And I think that rubbed him the wrong way. So... I would always get Fs on my proposals. I would propose something, and he would immediately go, "You got an F. There's no possible way you can do this. You don't have time. You don't have access. No one's going to let you do this." And then I would go out and do it, and then I would go, I would get high grades on the project, and then it would average out, and I was like a C student, right? So I kind of expected every time I would uh, pro- I would project or propose something, I would get shot down. Shot down being the key phrase. I'll get to in a minute. So I am. Uh, I'm out. I get a police scanner, a handheld police scanner. I've got an old 1983 Land Cruiser 4-speed. I would leave my horrible little apartment near the university at night, and I would drive over, and I would sit underneath the overpass of I-35, and I would turn on my police scanner, and I would wait. And it was chaos. So at the time, the west side of 35 was UT and and the state government, and the east side was gangland. And I, didn't, I never went to the east side. Like, the airport was over there, but I didn't have any money. I wasn't flying anywhere, so I never had any reason to go to the east side. I lived on the southeast side in a horrible little apartment, and uh, which I'll get to in a minute, which is kind of funny. And so I was hanging out over there with my police scanner, and I. it was just chaos. There were house fires and structure fires and shootings and homicides and drug things and whatever, and I was just rolling up on this stuff, man, and snapping away. And I had my little, bone you know, my idiotic little press pass from the student newspaper. And cops were cool at that time. Fire department was cool. And so all of a sudden, these guys got to know me. And one night, I'm in a house fire. And a guy in a suit and tie comes over, he's an older guy, and he goes, man, I keep seeing you here, who are you? And I start talking to him, it turns out his name's Irwin, and he was the official Austin Fire Department photographer, who was an awesome guy, who ended up teaching me how to print color, because he had this completely badass color printing lab at the at the fire department that was so far beyond anything the school had. And so I would do these color assignments for school, and I would print them at the, at the fire department instead of at school, and I think that also rubbed the department wrong. But anyway... Irwin's there. Irwin was incredibly helpful to me and nice and got me access to the fire department. And so I started riding, doing ride-alongs with the fire department. And, man, they'd put a helmet on me and, like, send me into these burning buildings. It was awesome. And so I I get to know them. And then through the fire department, I meet the police department. And through the police department, I meet the anti-gang unit. And the anti-gang unit was uh, mostly Latino guys. There was one Caucasian guy who did not like me at all. And the Latino guys were super cool, and I was like, oh, they're never going to let me hang out with them. And so I went to them and said, look, I'm a photo student. I'd love to do a thing on the gangs. I don't know anything about it, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, sure, sign this waiver that says if you get killed, your parents can't sue us, and you're fine. And so I did. And I immediately started riding around with these guys, and it was full-on chaos. Like no one in the west side of Austin seemed to have any idea what was happening on the east side. There There were dozens and dozens of gangs. It was very violent. There were shootouts, all kinds of stuff. We chased stolen cars. We got in massive traffic accidents. There were all kinds of stuff. I was in love. I was like, this is all I want to do. And I would show up at like 5 o'clock at night, and I would ride until 5 o'clock in the morning. And it was awesome. And through these guys, I met uh, a gang member who lived on the east side of Austin who was a young kid who I really liked. He was such a cool kid. And his entire family was in the gang. His mom, his dad, his sister, and his brother. Their gang owned a very short piece of territory which they fiercely defended, and they had some arch-rival gangs, right? And again, I'm this white kid from the suburbs who's, this is all new, right? And so I didn't realize at the time that this was a pretty dangerous uh, little undertaking that I was was in, but my buddy was looking out for me. And so I would go over and hang with these guys, and they would drop hints about things that were coming, that were going to happen, and they would hint about the fact that I should be there or I shouldn't be there. And I was really slow to pick up on this stuff, but... At one point, we're hanging out. It's in the middle of the night. There's not a lot going on. And I'm like fascinated by this culture. I'm fascinated by the idea that you would try to kill someone over a city block because that's where your gang lived and they were from somewhere else. And long story short, we're hanging out one night, and someone comes running into this house that we're in and says, so-and-so from another gang is at this other location. And everybody, like, scrambles to their cars. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll go, I'll go down there and check it out. So I'm like, I'm in this little caravan of cars. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen. Just driving along. And uh, we get to this little location, and I'm just hanging out. I have a 24 millimeter on a Nikon F4 and a strobe, right? Like an idiot. I've got a strobe, which is like a giant beacon over my head saying, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm right here. And the 24 is way too wide for anything unless I'm on top of someone. So, again, my head is completely up my ass at this point, but I'm, like, fumbling around. Now, there are people all over the place, civilians. People are hanging out, doing this, doing that. I still don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden, I hear glass break. So there's, there's two gangs involved here. And there's one gang who's behind me, and there's one gang in front. So not only do I have a 24 and a strobe, but I've somehow figured out that I'm to get right in the middle. I'm in the worst possible location you can possibly be. And I hear glass break, which is the driver's side window of a car at the end of the parking lot. There's a wee bit of a confrontation about to go down. And so the, the first bit of this confrontation was the, someone throwing a brick through someone's driver's side window. Now the civilians around me, and I'm and now now I'm I'm basically in a fog, right? Everything has slowed down. I'm in super slow mo. I'm in a fog, and I'm noticing in this fog that the movement of the civilians around me has changed dramatically. People are taking evasive action. They're getting down behind cars. They're diving behind park benches. They know what's coming. I don't. And all of a sudden comes a fully automatic rifle fire brrr, coming in my direction. Because, again, there's people behind me that are, that are not friends with the guy who just took a brick through his driver's side window. It's basically a gun battle in the middle of the city, in the middle of the night, with people all over the place. And I am uh, still not putting two and two together until I hear the rounds pinging off of the cars around me. And then I blacked out. Like, you're thinking, oh, you probably have this amazing photo essay of this whole moment. I didn't shoot a single frame. I don't know what I did. I blacked out. And when I came to, I was on the ground behind an engine block with a woman and two small kids. And she had been through this many times because she looked bored. And when I kind of came out of it, I could have, with the 24, this was perfect. They were right next to me. I could have made this amazing photo. I didn't even think about shooting. All I could think about was, holy cow, I didn't get hit. And so... This little moment, this little experience, I look back on it now, and it's and it's funny. No one got hit. There was not a single person hit. But here's the interesting part for me, and this is why I wanted to include it in here and why I think these are interesting stories for people. I was a photojournalism student. There is a huge difference between photojournalism and documentary photography in my mind. Photojournalism has two things, a news angle and a time element that are critical. You're typically on deadline, and what you're photographing has a news angle to it. So in this particular case, it was a full-on machine gun battle in the middle of West Austin or East Austin. Uh, really, not that late. It wasn't that middle of the night. It was probably ten o'clock at night, and and everybody runs right. The civilians run, the gangs run, and I'm just left standing there by myself in this parking lot for the most part. But a few things happened that I found intriguing, which changed my life. First off, within minutes, life was back to normal. The civilians in the area were back doing their same things. People got up, dusted themselves off, and went right back to whatever it was they were doing before. And the second thing was not a single law enforcement person showed up. Not one. I stayed and waited and waited for, because I thought I would run into people from the fire department and from the police department that I knew. And so I thought, oh, I'll hang around and then, you know, I'll be like, whoa, you guys missed it kind of thing. And uh, not a single person showed up. And that changed my life because. I realized at that moment I was never going to be a photojournalist. What I was going to be was a documentary photographer. And the reason why was because I was so intrigued by how this could have possibly gone down. And I was intrigued by the events that would lead up to something like that and the events that would lead after something like that. I was not interested in the gun battle. I was interested in the fact that for that to have happened— There were so many failures in so many what I'll call systems in our culture. And this was happening on such a regular routine basis that, again, the civilians just went back to their lives. You know, they're like, oh, I didn't get hit. Time to move on. And that is why I became a documentary photographer. Even though I continued on and got a degree in photojournalism, I began working on projects immediately because I realized I don't really care about the news cycle. I don't care about spot news. I don't care about the short term I'm interested in long play. And that all began for me on a night in East Austin when uh, someone was shooting at old Uncle Dano here. And, uh, and I can't say for sure that they were shooting at me in particular, although I was surrounded by people that I know they were shooting at. So technically, maybe, I don't think the guy was using his sights. I think he was spray and pray from his waist, and it was fully automatic. Let's make no uh, bombs, no... Uh, you know, um, we're under no illusion that this was a single, auto, uh, you know, single-action rifle. This was a machine pistol of some sort. And um, later on, my story riding around with the gang guys, I kept working on it for quite some time. Um, they pulled over a guy that had uh, military hardware with him, a gang member that had like a centerbreak grenade launcher and, and shells for it, which is like a military piece of hardware. So. This stuff's out there. And again, that became to me like part of the story, part of the background of how does this happen? So you had failures in systems like family, race, socioeconomic standing. You had the law enforcement uh, cycle. You had the court system because most of these kids had been arrested over and over and over again, but they were still out on the street kind of thing. So fascinating. And that's how we got here. And then in 2010, I quit and turned my back on it all. But that's a whole nother story. I hope you enjoyed this little, uh, this little episode. And I've got many of these odd little things that have happened over the years that have turned my life in one direction or the other that may be helpful for you. And um, that's it. So that's the podcast for this week. That was a long one, 48 minutes. But uh, it's just pure gold. For those of you who are listening, you're probably sobbing right now and building little clay sculptures of me, which is completely normal. So thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week.